When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome everybody to the show today. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Thursday, September 23rd. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here with me and, of course, my very special guest on today's edition of Real Vision Daily Briefing. We have the Bond King. That's not the Prince, not the Duke, not the Earl. No, the Bond King, Stephen Van Meter of Stephen Van Meter Financial is here with us. Stephen, welcome to the show. Dion, I'm very excited to be here with you today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I, I'm excited because everyone who knows me knows I love talking bonds. I love talking the bond market. Uh, so I'm really excited to have you here. Let's just get started today with your general market reaction. The Dow jumping up more than 500 per, or 500 points. And then, of course, you have that move higher in the 10-year Treasury note, the 10-year Treasury yield up over 1.4%, I think settling now at about 1.41, 1.42. What do you make of the general market action today after we had those big sell-offs earlier in the week? Yeah, it was it was really interesting because if you looked at the bond market going into the close, uh, we were down on the 30-year right around 1.8 and change. And we were looking like we were going to break support and, and start moving down to uh, 1.6. And then all of a sudden, you know, this morning I wake up and it's like, whoa, bonds are getting hammered. And then, wow, they, they're continuing to get hammered and stocks are rallying. And so you start to think about what's the what's going on? What is the market thinking about? And you can look back to yesterday's FOMC meeting, which I know we're going to get into in a little bit, and you find out that you know people were kind of thinking that maybe the taper was a bad move, and in that you can see in the reaction of the bond market by yields going down, and then you know apparently all the money managers around the world slept on it, and now all of a sudden you know today they believe that not only is the Fed going to end up tapering, but they think the Fed's right, and so if you think the Fed's right then your natural move is going to be to short the bond market because you, you're going to expect economic growth and along with that, higher consumer prices. And then, of course, the belief, which is who knows if it's really true because it doesn't seem that way, that higher consumer prices have to lead to higher interest rates. So the natural move then is you short bonds. And of course, it looks like they were very aggressive on that move today. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and I talked to uh, Jim Bianco, I think, last week, or maybe it was a uh, Monday of this week, and he said, watch that 1.4 level. Uh, when you see this, I mean, we've got, like I talked about, huge moves higher in the stock market. The Russell 2000 up 1.9% at the close, which a big bounce back there, but the Dow up 1.5%, uh, the S&P 500 up 1.2%, the NASDAQ up 1% at the close. You see those numbers, but you also see this move higher in yields. What's your big takeaway in terms of looking at stocks and then looking at that treasury market, Steve? Well, yeah, definitely the equity market is you know risk on for whatever reason they think that taper is a good thing, um, and, and it really baffles me, Dion, because. You know, if you look at what's driving the equity market, it's hard to argue that corporate share buybacks, margin debt, 
are really helping boost equity prices. And if interest rates were to go up, which should be the byproduct of an eventual balance sheet taper, or even actually the completion of the taper, as the Fed sort of suggests it could happen by mid-next year, then you would think that equity investors might start to kind of you know, rein in a little bit. Uh, but apparently, they have this view that this is a risk-on move. The economy is going to take off, and they want to front-run it. And you look at the sentiment, and that's really something that I find interesting, is listening to what people say out there on FinTwit and other places. And the belief is we are at the beginning of a secular bull market, if that is indeed true. Now, I personally don't really agree with that, but if it is indeed true, then, well, you want to load up not only in equities, but you want to borrow as much as you can and front-run that move. So then you flip over to the bond market, and you say, well, it's all it's doing is validating what we see in the equity market, so there must be some truth here. And one thing that I look at, and I know we were talking before the show that you're really into the data, is I love something called volume profile. And that's when you overlay over a period of time where most of the shares are trading. You start pulling up uh, something like TLT on the long bond, and you see that all that happened today was prices moved down into this heavy, congested area of trading volume on about a six-month window. And it then kind of makes you start to wonder, is it really people that are bearish driving prices down? Or are we still in the middle of an accumulation pattern that the bulls are just saying, hey, you know what you want to sell? Bring it on down here because we're going to buy. And that's something we've seen repeatedly is whenever the long bond gets over 1.9, the buyers come in droves. And over the last six months, hmm. they've come in very, very strong. So uh, it could yeah. be maybe a bait and switch on the by the bond bulls here just looking to grab more shares before um, it kind of we find out if the economic data is going to validate the Fed's uh, potential decision coming. Yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. And and you bring up the Fed, right? And I don't think you can talk about markets without talking about the Fed, without talking about central banks. I think if you're doing that in 2021, you're playing the game wrong. <laughs> you're living life wrong. That's it is the trade. Uh, and obviously, we got a big uh, meeting and a big time statement from the Federal Reserve. Now I want to go to a clip right here and we're going to you know this is from a conversation we had on Real Vision yesterday. You've got Jeff Snyder, he is the head of global research at Alhambra Investments. And in this clip you're going to hear Jeff talk about the fact that things are really changing with regard to what's happening with central banks. And coming out of that, Steve, I want to get your reaction. But this is Jeff Snyder talking with Real Vision's own Maggie Lake um, about what's going on with central banks. How could it be that an all-powerful central bank had allowed a two-year global crisis to develop and then develop that horribly? You know, we're missing something there. Yeah. It's really, when you start to dig into it, you realize that the, what these central banks actually do aren't actually central bank type activities. That's when things start to really make sense. It's, you know, when you put the monetary system and together with what central banks actually do, which is to manipulate behavior and expectations, which is very different than monetary policy, that's, that's where you start to think, okay, so 2008 wasn't just a one singular event. It was the start of something else. It was a paradigm shift. And like I said, that was Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Investments, talking with our own Maggie Lake. And Jeff, I thought, made some really interesting points there. I think he's he's really very locked into this perspective, but he talks about 
2008 being the start of a global paradigm or the start of a paradigm shift in terms of what central banks are doing. Um, Stephen, I want to bring that towards forward to September 2021 and just ask you, you know, we're a day removed now from the Fed's meeting, from the statement, from the press conference with Chair Jay Powell. As you look at the market reaction to this, you've talked a little bit about it, but what were your thoughts coming out of that meeting after what you heard from Jay Powell? Yeah, uh, um, good question. You know, I, w- I do want to say I absolutely love Jeff Snyder. I love his research, and uh, he is an absolute treasure that we all get to enjoy. And uh, it's always good to hear him talk. And you know, my reaction going into the Fed meeting was there's no way they're going to announce a taper. Uh, we we heard that from the market expectation that they were going to at least. Well, they could announce one, or that there was a strong suggestion there would be one. And what did we find out that the Powell punted on this one, and the whole board was supportive. There wasn't one person that I saw that voted against uh, the monetary uh, decision. So now we have this lead that, okay, in November, which is our next meeting, uh, FOMC meeting from the second to third, that that's when we're likely to get an announcement. We heard in the press conference that Jay Powell said that you know he was pretty much on board with this, which was weird because the prior meeting, he was nowhere near. I mean, he was, in fact, he seemed almost further apart than anybody, at least at the Jackson Hole meeting in his, his speech following that. And all of a sudden, mm. now he's back on board. And, and maybe why? Why do we have to think that he's had this paradigm shift in his view? Is you start to look at the number of job openings, the the, the Jolt survey, you know, printing nearly 11 million openings. We have all these people going off unemployment benefits, and the Fed has to believe they have to that all these people are going to go back to work because. Well, seven and a half million of them, their income's going to zero. So naturally, the move should be they're going to go back in the workforce. In the next several months, we should have the multi-million print of job hires. I mean, there should be. This is what should happen. And if that is the case, and we get back to full employment, which is important for the Fed, because they've never started pulling accommodation historically, ever, if you follow the Fed, ever, until every last job is back, there seem to suggest that that should be happening uh, by and large at the end of December as we go into the holiday season, which would put them on pace to announce an official taper starting in January, to which I'm shocked to think that they claim a gradual completion of it in six months by mid-2022. Uh, so my huh. takeaway was they're actually not going to end up tapering. Uh, probably by the time they get around to it, they're going to end up doing more QE. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Wow. Wow. Stephen, the Bond King dropping some fiery, uh, some fiery predictions and some hot takes there. Now, let me let me ask you about that real quick, Stephen, because uh, from everyone I talked to on Wall Street, they seem to say and, you know, the economists as well, that Powell was signaling November, we're going to get at the very least an announcement and possibly even they're going to say, hey, we're going to start tapering here in November. But what I hear you saying is they're not going to start until 2022. And I think another piece of data we got to 
today that maybe supports your claim is that, uh, you know, we got these initial jobless claim numbers today higher than expected. Uh, the last jobs report was weak. We got some data from JP Morgan saying, uh, or Goldman Sachs, excuse me, saying we expect this next jobs report is also going to be weak. Is that what you're looking at? And that's telling you that they're not going to be able to pull off this November taper? And you, you, were, you and I must be right in, dialed into the same data set because it's exactly <laughs> what I was looking at is we've seen the initial claims printing uh, in the low to mid 300,000 range. And historically, if you look at, at a print at that level, you do get a weak job report. You absolutely get a weak one. And so I look at that. We know the Fed is focused on that. And it's interesting because we don't, we don't have any data right now other than the initial claims to suggest if the next non-farm payroll report will be good or bad, or if they'll have to really fake it to make it look good. We do, we just don't know. And I think mm. that from Powell's perspective, part of it may be because uh, President Biden has not renominated him uh, to hold the chair position again, that it would be a uh -oh. foolish move for him, I think, politically, to come out and say, hey, not only are we going to taper, but we're going to start it, say, in November or whenever. Because if the economy rolls over, which I think is his absolute biggest risk, and I think he believes there is a probability that that could happen in a very reasonable and he's not now he's not going to publicly come out or out and ever say never no fed official be like hey i think we're on the edge of a double dip recession they'll never say that they're always going to be optimistic mm -hmm. but what is his risk he announces a taper and then by november perhaps for whatever reason uh, there's uh, the the covid is back even worse than before or the economy is just rolling over and all of a sudden the biden administration says you know what we now have a scapegoat you're out pal and he eats it. So what is his only move is to punt the ball long enough where they have to make a decision. He looks like the heir apparent to his own job. And then after that, he's got four years that he can effectively do whatever he wants. I still don't think he does, but at least he gives himself some latitude. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Now, of course, we're taking questions on the exchange. That's Real Vision social platform. So drop your questions there. Steve, I want to hit you with a couple questions from the exchange right now before we get into our next topic. But Jose C points out there have been several executives providing guidance and pointing out that supply chain issues might persist well into 2022. We saw you know, auto companies, there was a report out just today uh, from Alex that said that they expect the chip shortage is going to cost uh, auto companies $210 billion, that's billion with a B, because this thing is going to persist well into 2022. Uh, Jose is saying, assuming that current inflation is transitory and mostly due to supply chain issues, is there a scenario under which inflation could remain elevated due to persistent issues? I uh, gives an as an example, until economic activity kicks in and drives inflation on the back of economic growth. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think he has an extremely valid point. And there, th this is where you start to get into the data and the numbers and the idea that you go, okay, higher prices or higher commodity prices. Well, that's inflationary. Well, it can also be deflationary or disinflationary because if prices are going up and my wages aren't, then how is it that I can afford the higher prices? Now, we've all been in that mm -hmm. situation. None of us probably were born you know, rolling around in money. We've all, we've all been at that day where we only had so much money 
to get by and we've had more things that we needed. And what do you start doing? You make decisions on what you can no longer do. Well, I got to eat tonight. So that means I can't go out with my friends this weekend. So I'm only going to put enough gas in the car to maybe, uh, you know, just get through the errands I have instead of going on that road trip over to the beach that I was really excited to do. And that's what happens to higher prices is they get rejected by consumers because they just don't mm -hmm. have the money to afford it. And so I think the yeah. question is, is could the supply chain lead to somewhat sticky inflation? It absolutely can. But the, the flip side of the coin, and, and this is something unless you've owned a business or been you know, a key person in a business, you know, if I open up a retail spot and I put inventory on the shelf, if it doesn't move, then what? Do I raise the price? Yeah. Do I look around and say, hey, Dion, my buddy next door, he's raising his prices and he's not selling anything. So I'm going to raise my prices. Well, that doesn't work because there's things like payroll and electricity and yeah. mortgages and, and kids to feed that I can't do that. So what happens is if people do not come in and buy my goods and services, then I'm forced to lower them. And then what I do is I turn around to my wholesalers and I put pressure on them who put pressure on the manufacturers to say, hey, look, everybody, if you all want to get paid too, we got to cut our prices. And I think that's hmm. what sticky inflation from supply chain is going to lead to is consumers ultimately rejecting them because not only are the extended unemployment benefits gone, but a lot of people falling off the pandemic claims but we're not seeing them going back to work. In fact, as you mentioned in the initial claims, we're seeing employers still laying off at you know, a level 50% higher than normal. That's a problem. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you talk about that rejection of the higher prices. We're certainly seeing that. Uh, we're seeing some data. I've been watching this from this uh, data firm, Civic Science, and they were talking to folks about how worried are you about you know, inflation. Almost 90% of the people they surveyed say they are worried at least somewhat about inflation. And you're seeing as well, almost a third of buyers, a, th a third of consumers saying that they're pulling back on purchases, that they're buying less than they used to because of these higher prices. And about half of consumers saying, yeah, I'm noticing these higher prices and really starting to reshuffle or rethink my budget and, and what I'm actually going to go out there and buy. So, you know, we're absolutely seeing that already. And I, I think that may be one thing that, you know, when the Fed talks about the Delta variant and the Fed talks about these other things kind of hamstringing the economy, one thing they've been very reticent to talk about is higher prices. And really, when you look at what's down in terms of that, uh, the latest retail sales report, the biggest declines were in the places where we've seen the biggest increase in price. That, to me, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And that's one of the things where we look at crude oil, for example. A lot of people are just mega bullish on crude that's going to be 100, 120 a barrel. And maybe it gets there at some point. But I want to suggest that that would be a really bad thing for the economy right now. Because if I'm coming off unemployment and I have to go look for a job, well, I've got to put gas in my car. And gas prices mm -hmm. from my contacts in the oil industry, they're telling me they're going higher. Well, again, it comes back to just what you said. I've got to start managing my budget. And people are starting to make decisions and either I'm not going to do things like such as spend on discretionary goods and services, which will have a huge impact on the inflation, or they're going to have to cut back things they're already doing now. And that's key. Like, no, I'm not going to eat out as much, or I'm going to you know, do different things. And that will lead to ultimately lower consumer prices unless people do go back to work in droves and they have the pricing pressure to put on employers to say, not only do I want that higher wage that you're offering, I want an even bigger wage. I don't think employers do that, but we'll see. 
Very interesting. Very interesting. And I think that transitions us very well into, you know, the next thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, Stephen. That's this report we saw today, American households seeing net worth rise above $141 trillion. That sounds really great until you dig into the number. Now, you saw an increase of about 5.8% $5 trillion in net worth. That's for everyone in the US. That's up 4.3%. However, that increase is almost all in equities, about 80% of that, excuse me, 60% of that increase coming from increases in stock prices yep. and 80% coming from increases in stock prices and housing prices. Yep. Who owns stocks? Who owns houses? The wealthy, the top 1%, owns about 41.5% of the wealth and owns about 90% of the stock. The top 10% of households own 90% of equities. Uh, you see the same disparities in home ownership and the overall value of home ownership. So it seems like the wealthy did really well and they've done really well as stock prices and housing prices are going up. The bottom 50% of earners in the US only have 2.6% of the wealth they're not quite doing as well. And they're the ones who have the jobs and who need the jobs, excuse me, because they go out and they do the spending, they buy the goods and they keep this thing running. When I saw this number and I saw this report out today, this just jumped out at me as a huge income and wealth inequality story. And I haven't seen that narrative or what that means for the market uh, really talked about. So, see, I want to kick that to you. I mean, what are your thoughts about this report and what that says about not only the economy, but the, the market here? Yeah, that, that's, it is really interesting because the people that I, I end up talking to and, and have a lot of dialogues with say, well, the spending is going to keep going. And I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. Consumers are just roaring to spend. I'm like, wait a minute. So we had the worst 10 years in economic growth. Then we have a pandemic. Then we give people a bunch of money. They go and clear every shelf and then some. And now you're saying they're getting roared up. And what? Who am I? Who is telling me that? The top fifty percent, right? It's. I'm. We're not talking about the bottom fifty percent because the top fifty percent think this is just the beginning. And what they don't seem to realize, and as you pointed out, is the bottom fifty percent. The only reason they were able to continue spending is because the government gave them money, and that is gone. And now not only do they have less money, because we know the data showed that they, due to the extended unemployment benefits, they had more money on during the pandemic than they did when they were working. So now they're going to have less money. Let's just assume they go back to their old job at their old wage. They're going to have lower income and higher prices. How is that going to lead to a massive surge in spending? It's not. In fact, I expect it to lead to a big drop in spending. And as you kind of mentioned, retail sales, other than this last month, the month over month, we almost got a four-peat of negative month over month. I expect, due to higher gas prices and rents and utilities, that we are going to see a drop in spending, and perhaps a quite considerable one. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Wow. That's, and that's super interesting, too, because, you know, another thing that I felt like we in the media really missed out of this Fed report was when you dig into their projections, the summary of economic projections they put out, 
all the inflation forecasts were up, right? They're now expecting 4.2% inflation. But the, the growth forecast, the GDP forecast, those were all down. And more Fed officials, more people on the FOMC are saying, yeah, our, our worries are to the downside, not to the upside. The risk to this even lower GDP forecast that we've put out are to the downside. And I thought that was something that really didn't seem to get as much attention as I I thought it deserved. I want to go to another question here from Fred P. on the exchange. Uh, He asks, can Steve share his thoughts on the dollar and the direction of bond prices through year end in view of tapering and the debt ceiling? He says it feels like a multidimensional chess game right now. Yeah, I, I think the dollar and bonds go higher, and there's a relationship between them. And I want people to start to think about bonds as deferred dollars. And you know, think about this: you put dollars in a bond, and you get it back at some point in the future. Could be you know, four-week T-bill, could be a thirty-year bond. You get dollars back in the future. And so the question is: are those dollars, when you get them back in the future, worth more or less? And if they're going to be worth more, then bond prices will go up. If they're going to be worth less bond prices go down. And that's why you tend to see the dollar and bond prices move together. Now, does it mean they're perfectly, they're always correlated? In fact, there are times that they get split apart. You know, and I like to think of them as like a dating couple. They they they're always together, but there's sometimes they get tired of each other and say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go a different direction," and then one of them misses the other and comes back. But if you look at both of them, they're both being poised to move higher. And the Fed right now is just purchasing a ridiculous amount of bonds at a point where we're we should start seeing. And I don't know if the 20-year bond auction this week was the first. I already looked at the uh, 2, 5, and 7 coming next week, and there's no indication the the, the auction sizes are going to drop. But at some point, and I, again, I don't know when, Dion, you might know, uh, the Treasury is going to reduce the size of the auctions because that was part of the plan is to go, drop back down to normal levels. But what we know at the moment is, at least for the next two months, the Fed isn't going to drop back. And that means they're going to be sucking up more of the inventory and bonds in the market, and that will put downward pressure on yields, upward pressure on prices. And then you look at what monetary policy does to kind of answer the question on the dollar, is it's going to continue to lock up reserves in the commercial banking system with the intent to strengthen the dollar. So you look at both of those factors, and that leads to an increase in bond prices and the dollar. Even if the Fed starts tapering this year, which I'm, I'm just still going to go on the fact that if they do, and I'm not convinced they will, that they will wait until the next year, that there's still an overabundance of purchasing relative to, relative to what the auction sizes are. So um, mm-hmm. my view is we should still continue to see financial conditions tighten due to QE, and that will put upward pressure on both of them. That's very interesting. Very interesting, Steve. I want to go to a couple more questions from the exchange and get those out of here before we wrap up for the day. Um, I want to first ask this question because you, you were getting real deep in the bond market here. And I want to see if I can get your uh, well, first I'll ask this question from Tom Franchi. He asks, can the 10-year yield move this violently? without freaking out high yield. And let's all keep in mind that the high yield market yields there are the lowest in history and just have been sort of sticking at that point for quite some time. So you're seeing that compression in terms of the spread between high yield and the 10-year note. Uh, but Thomas Molnix 
asks, could you touch on why indirect bidders have been so strong in recent bond and bill auctions? In addition to eight-week bill auction day, had unbelievable demand and in indirect bidders, but direct bidders very low. Uh, talk a little bit about that. We're gonna go. We're gonna. I want to keep you from going too too deep, Steve. Because okay. we don't oh, want to. Yeah. We don't want to get too deep in the water. But please jump in there. Standing repo facilities. When the Fed announced this late July, I was like, oh my God, they are going to create a massive amount of demand for treasuries on top of their own QE purchases. And effectively, what they did, and this is largely going to apply to three year notes and higher, anything that has a yield above a quarter percent per year, what the Fed says is, we're going to make the entire curve liquid. I don't care if you have a bill, note, or bond, you can come to us through a standing repo facility and you can turn that in as for to borrow dollars for a quarter percent per year and still cash flow the difference. And all of a sudden, what did we see immediately following? Massive demand from indirect bidders because now they don't need to hold on to as many dollars. They can just put those dollars into treasuries and know they can get them on demand. It's like a payday loan. <laughs> yeah, but at lower interest rates, lower interest rates than a payday loan. Yeah, absolutely. So that so it was a standing repo facility that really changed the demand from the indirects. Hmm. Very interesting. And I want to talk to you about Evergrande as well. We got a question from Jack Burnett about Evergrande. And he asked, with Evergrande Group on top of mind everywhere, where does the Chinese consumer with money locked into property and real estate fit into your macro thesis over the next six to 12 months? Um, you know, I don't really worry about the Chinese consumer too much. I more look at China in terms as the world's largest exporter. If they start to slow down exports, then it tells me eventually as those ships get over to the United States and then sit off the port of Los Angeles for a month or whatever they need to to get unloaded, that eventually uh, they're going to be seeing less export demand, less import demand. And in a debt-based economy, if you want to know how the economy is doing, you want to see a growth in import import and exports across the board from, from all countries. So if you start to see Asia countries, particularly China, export less, well, that tells you where demand is coming from the United States, and that means less demand. So um, as far as the actual Chinese consumer, I'm not, I don't focus really on them, but I would presume if they were like me and I was worried that my money was going to get eviscerated um, or locked up for longer periods of time than I hoped, then that would probably lead to less spending. Mm, okay. Less spending, not a good thing, but that is what we have seen in the data. Uh, and to me, when I look at this Evergrande scandal, the way things are developing with, you know, they, they said they were going to pay the bond, but then they weren't quite sure they could pay the bond. And they're trying to pay off some of the dollar denominated debt and, and you know, try to pay off more of the yuan denominated debt. And it reminds me so much of PETAVESA with Venezuela uh, a few years ago. I remember covering that and there was all this drama. Is PETAVESA, that's the state-owned oil company of Venezuela, are they going to pay the bonds? Are they not? And then at the 11th hour, they always did. Somehow they managed to find some money and they were able to pay off the bonds. To me, that's what I expect here. But do you have a different thought about what's going to happen with Evergrande, Stephen? Um, yeah, I, I, I suspect that either they will, um, you know, we heard some rumors yesterday that they're, um, the government is going to take them over and split them apart. Uh, there is mm -hmm. absolute pressure on them, them to pay those bonds. And I think the risk they made, and a lot of people don't realize, and you mentioned it, that they have borrowed in dollars. Now, not all of them. They, they do have some local bonds, but they borrowed in dollars. And if you're borrowing dollars and you're a foreign country, then you're betting on a weaker dollar. Well, the last thing that Evergrande wants right now 
is a dollar to, to stay firm as the current level or go higher because that means its borrowing costs go up and that puts it at risk for default. Uh, the only question I have isn't, you know, is, is, is Evergrande going to fail? Whether it does or not is it, isn't the material issue. This is where we get that layman-like event. And, I, and I, it's funny that people use that because the, only, the way I view it is we thought layman was a one-off. We didn't know that Bear Stearns was lingering in the background. We didn't know that at the time, and the stock market rallied thinking, hey, everything's gone, and the next thing you know, Bear Stearns is blown up, and then it's a great financial crisis. That is the risk for China right now is, is there another Evergrande or more sitting behind them waiting to blow up, particularly if the dollar goes higher and they're sitting on a ton of dollar-denominated debt? It's the dollar. All knees eventually will bow to the almighty dollar when you're borrowing in it, and that is probably their biggest risk. Mm, okay. Stephen Van Meter dropping some knowledge there on what's going on with the bond market, what's going on with Evergrande, and what's going on big picture with China. Look, that's going to do it for us today on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I want to thank my guest, Stephen Van Meter of Stephen Van Meter Financial, the bond king, joining us today on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Dion, it was an absolute pleasure to be here with you today on my inaugural uh, uh, debut on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I look forward to next time, my friend. Take care. Absolutely. And I want to thank all of you out there who joined us on YouTube. If you want to catch the full interview, Maggie Lake and Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Investments, you've got to be an essential plus or pro member of the Real Vision family. So if you're not already and you want to watch that interview, you want to see everything Jeff had to say, be sure and join Real Vision on the essential plus or pro tier. That's going to do it for the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Dion Rabowen. Thanks for being with us and come back tomorrow. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.